You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Friday, July 15th, 2022 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, many try to return to normal from COVID, but disabled people face a different reality. From NPR News. And four food truths people refuse to believe. From the Washington Post. Plus, COVID-19 reinfections may increase the likelihood of new health problems. From CNN. And more, time permitting. Now, here's our first report. Many try to return to normal from covid but disabled people face a different reality, by Shruti Rajkumar from NPR News. Beth Kenny is immunocompromised, but found a routine that worked for their family during the pandemic, leaning into safe protocols to protect themselves from COVID-19. Kenny's wife could pick up the groceries and social distancing measures and vaccines allowed their family to do activities together outside safely. And the precautions helped Kenny's wife safely ride the bus and go to the library with their child, Vila, without putting the family's health at risk. The sense of safety the routine provided them during all this time came to an end in February when the mask mandate for indoor spaces ended in their home state of California. Now, nearly the entire country has lifted COVID-19 safety precautions, such as mask mandates on buses and airplanes and in restaurants and other indoor settings. Safety precautions have been rescinded as many try to return to a sense of pre-pandemic normalcy. But the reality of disabled and immunocompromised people remains forgotten, causing them to feel left behind and further pushed out of society, disability advocates say. Kenny and their family used to be able to participate safely in both indoor and outdoor activities when the mask mandates were in place. Eventually, it became apparent that swim lessons were needed for Vila, who has autism. Due to the COVID protocols that were in place at the facility and in other places within their community, Kenny's wife was able to take Vila to her swim lessons, go to the library, and ride the bus throughout town. They even found an outdoor preschool that allowed Viola to safely continue her education. Now their family is locked inside once again, and Kenny struggles to explain the reality to their child. The damage that it's caused to my family is that my child is having nightmares about my death, Kenny told NPR over Zoom. This started after mask mandates were removed because we really had to pull back from a lot of activities and explaining why we had to do that is scary for a four-year-old to have to take on, Kenny said. How COVID is measured makes it difficult for immunocompromised people to assess risks. Back in March, Jay Justice had been invited to speak on accessibility at the Game Developers Conference, or GDC, an annual event for video game developers. Justice is director of LGBTHQ, a group that supports queer writers, artists, creators, and developers in comics and gaming. Traveling from her home in the Bronx to San Francisco for the event as an immunocompromised person was only feasible because of the mask mandates on planes. This was not long before U.S. airlines announced that masks would not be required for travel. 
57% of disabled people believe that masks should be required on public transportation, and 64% think masks should be required on planes, according to a survey of likely voters conducted in April by Data for Progress, a progressive think tank and political advocacy group. However, mask mandates have been lifted on various forms of transportation and in other parts of society amid court rulings and declining cases reported by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. In March, the CDC began determining COVID-19 community levels based on new hospital COVID admissions and the percentage of beds occupied by COVID patients. But hospitalization data is a lagging indicator of how much COVID-19 is spreading in the community. Matthew Cortland, a senior fellow at Data for Progress, notes that when someone gets COVID-19, it doesn't cause them to become sick immediately and they may spread it to other people before they're symptomatic or become sick enough to require hospitalization. If you're using that hospital data for your public health interventions, you're always going to be behind the curve. You're always going to be playing catch-up. And with a disease like COVID that can spread so easily and rapidly, that means if you're behind the curve, there's going to be uncontrolled spread, Cortland told NPR News. Cortland points out that public transit is a vital lifeline for disabled and immunocompromised people as it connects them to doctors, grocery stores, and other aspects of society. But because of the new way COVID-19 levels are measured, along with the lifting of mask mandates, disabled and immunocompromised people say they feel it's too risky to safely go out. That applies to even a seemingly simple task. For instance, since getting back from the convention in San Francisco, Justice hasn't been able to go to her storage unit to put her stuff from the trip away because of how quickly the mandates had been lifted. All we're really asking for is for a masking policy that will allow us to be able to go to the store, go to the doctor, go get the mail without risking our health, Justice said. One-way masking does not work, and no one seems to care outside of our community because they don't see you as someone who needs to be protected. They see you as someone who's just on borrowed time as it is, she said. The GDC conference offered a hybrid format, including remote video access, but Justice said she ended up attending in person because of the lack of opportunities that would follow if she didn't. She said that when you hold multiple marginalized identities, people already don't see you as a hiring opportunity. It is absolutely demoralizing to feel like if I hadn't risked my health, I wouldn't have had the opportunities that I've gotten. I preach constantly that you have value outside of capitalism, but it is so hard to push against the constant reinforcement that we don't, Justice said. I easily could have gotten COVID and died at GDC, she added. I don't want to die for capitalism, but at the same time, my actions have to reinforce the issue, because if I don't, how am I going to pay for my medication, she said. Disability advocates say putting the economy first cuts the odds of renewing COVID safety measures. Disability rights advocate Imani Babaran said economic pressures, including the push to get people to return to their offices, are contributing to the constantly changing COVID policies. She notes that with the decades of exponential growth in the economy, many don't care about people being expendable tools for labor. Even if you think of bodies and people as machines for labor, you have to set the time aside for maintenance. And as a society, we don't want to do that, Barbara told NPR over Zoom. 
We want to keep chugging along and return to normal. We can't keep treating people like this and expect progress and continue its upward trends in economics and economic policy if you don't take care of people first, she said. Cortland says that to break this cycle of back-and-forth policies and actually stop the spread of COVID, people need to keep wearing N95 masks and invest in indoor air filtration. Additionally, they said that Congress or states should allocate money for wastewater data monitoring, which can provide more accurate data on COVID-19 community levels. When you pursue pandemic policies that keep people like me, people with chronic illness and disabilities, and who are immunocompromised, safe, you protect everyone, because if we're safe, everyone is safe, Cortland said. We do not need to be locked into this cycle of preventable suffering and death, Cortland said. People within the disability community, such as Kenny, have actively worked to break the cycle and advocate for the return of COVID safety policies. Kenny is a member of Senior and Disability Action, or SDA, a San Francisco-based organization that mobilizes and educates seniors and disabled people to fight for individual rights and social justice. This year, Kenny said that SDA has been meeting with public health officials and transit health officials to push for mask requirements. Currently, AC Transit, a Bay Area public transit agency, has a mask requirement in place, but Kenny wonders how long it will remain. At the end of June, Alameda County undid indoor mask requirements despite still being in the high-risk category as defined by the CDC. Although some officials have been receptive to SDA's work and goal of reinstating mask mandates, Kenny said that many who have the power to change these policies are resistant. Babarin says that the frequent changes in messaging of COVID mitigation policies has resulted in people thinking that it's all a personal choice. Public health has become about personal responsibility, Kenny said, and that benefits the people who have the most resources. I think there's an understanding that seniors and high-risk folks are being lost to the virus, and there is an acceptance of that, Kenny said. But I think people don't want to look too hard at it, and maybe they're losing the thread that they're just one COVID infection away from being in my shoes and being as disposable as people with pre-existing conditions are under the current COVID policies. Disabled people say they are being disregarded even as their numbers grow due to long COVID. The number of disabled people in the U.S. is predicted to increase as more people get infected with the virus. According to a recent study released by the CDC, one in five adults under the age of 65 who had COVID are experiencing at least one health condition that could be considered long COVID. As the number of people who have been infected with SARS-CoV-2 increases, so will the number of survivors suffering from post-COVID conditions. I'm proud to be a person with disabilities, but I don't want to see our numbers growing so fast, Kenny said. Habarin said she believes this loop of loosening and reinstating COVID policies will continue until the most privileged communities feel the effects. I don't really think we're going to get to a place where we're more steadfast in our COVID mitigation unless the majority of the most privileged people are impacted by COVID and by these policies because our system is built to protect some and let others die, she said. This issue has been brought back into light, especially with disabled people wanting to take part in protests regarding bodily autonomy. 
With the overturn of Roe v. Wade, the disability community has vocalized the ways that the Supreme Court decision will impact their community. However, without mask and social distancing requirements, those who are immunocompromised and disabled can't safely attend the protests. I just want everyone to be safe, Justice said, but I know that the world is moving on without the sense of safety. The United States has moved on and does not provide safety for anybody. It feels like an uphill battle, constantly fighting for someone, anyone, to care, she said. Up next, the four food truths people refuse to believe. Yes, diet soda is totally fine. By Tamar Haspel from the Washington Post. And this article is written in the first person. I've been writing this column trying to find out what's really true about food for some eight years now. In that time, I've dug into some questions that turned out to have surprising answers. You can always gauge exactly how surprising by the number of people who call you an idiot on social media, and that's pretty much what happens when you try to put a stake through the heart of zombie ideas. What doesn't happen is that the ideas actually die. I am shocked, shocked, that I have persuaded basically nobody that these four things are true. But the fight continues. Number one, we eat junk food because it's cheap. If there is just one idea I would like to exile from food discourse, it's this one. We eat junk because of subsidies. Junk food is cheap. That's because the building blocks of junk food, refined grains, sugar, oil, are cheap. But those building blocks are cheap because of the inherent qualities of the plant, not because the government has been subsidizing them for decades. If you have any doubt about this, check out the estimates that agriculture schools publish of costs to produce an acre of corn versus an acre of broccoli. According to an estimate from researchers in the University of California system, the cost to produce a 23-pound box of broccoli is about $15. According to an Iowa State estimate, the cost to produce a 56-pound bushel of corn is about $4. And the corn is way more food. That bushel makes 1,500 tortillas, 6-inch tortillas, 60 calories, each with a quarter cent's worth of corn. The box of broccoli makes 70 two-cup servings, roughly 150 grams, 60 calories, each with 21 cents worth of broccoli. Yeah, we're not eating tortillas. We're eating Twinkies. The example is just to bring the inherent cheapness of the ingredients into perspective. I've talked to a lot of economists about this over the years, and most tell me that subsidies aren't responsible for more than about 10% of the price of commodity crops. And since food costs are typically 10-15% to 15 of the cost of processed food, that's 1% of the price of your Twinkie. We eat Twinkie-esque foods because food companies with bazillion-dollar budgets and no concerns about our health stay up late trying to figure out how to make cheap food irresistible. And guess what? They've gotten very good at it. Number two, diet soda is totally fine. There is zero evidence that diet soda is bad for us. Oh wait, except for those big observational studies. In those, diet soda correlates with everything bad, cancer, obesity, diabetes, just for starters. But a funny thing happens when you actually feed people artificial sweeteners. Nothing. 
unless you count losing a little weight. In the real world, drinking diet soda demonstrates that you don't listen to nutrition authorities who have been recommending against it for decades. And if you're not listening about that, what else might you not be listening to? The cancer, obesity, and diabetes that correlate with diet soda are most likely not caused by the diet soda, but by other eating and health habits for which diet soda is a marker. If you're like most health-conscious people, the idea that artificial sweeteners are bad is deeply ingrained. But the most important thing to remember about them is that you consume them in tiny quantities. A Splenda packet contains 12 milligrams of sucralose. Of course, it's possible for 12 milligrams of something to do you harm, but if something's that dangerous, it's pretty easy to figure it out. People have been trying to find problems with artificial sweeteners for decades, and they just haven't. If you drink them in soda or use them to sweeten things you make at home, keep on keeping on. It's just fine. Number three, local foods aren't better for the climate. I go out of my way to buy local veg and meat. I want agriculture in my community. I like going to the farmer's market. But any way you slice it, local foods aren't better for the environment. They're just not. Intuitively, it makes sense that they should be. If your lettuce travels cross-town instead of cross-country, that's a couple thousand fossil-fueled miles that don't have to happen. But it turns out that transport is a very small fraction of the climate impact of food, less than 10% most of the time. Climate isn't the only thing I think about when I choose dinner. Local farms can contribute to local economies, provide community touchstones, and just be a place where a kid can meet a pig. If you want to cut the climate harm of your diet, eat more of the crops that have the smallest environmental impact. Grains, legumes, nuts, tubers, tree fruits. It doesn't mean you have to stop buying local. Number four, salad is a first world luxury. Let's get one thing straight. Lettuce is a vehicle to bring refrigerated water from farm to table. If you have an intuitive sense that a food that's 96% water is a waste of resources and a nutritional zero, you're right. If you don't, you could be one of the bazillion people who came down hard on me when I wrote about the leafy green climate menace that is salad. Okay, that's a little unfair. Salad isn't a menace, it's just a luxury. It uses too many resources for too little food to be a smart choice for either human or planetary health. It graces my table because I like it and because it can help me say no to seconds of lasagna. But that's a solution to a first-world problem, too much food. The idea that we're deliberately growing and eating food specifically because it's low-calorie makes sense only in a world of overabundance. But there's a hitch there, too. Lettuce lends its health halo to anything that gets put in a bowl with it, and the salads we think of as healthful generally aren't. If you buy a salad and then remove the lettuce, you see what you're really eating for lunch. Sad little brown piles of croutons, dressing, shredded cheese, and chicken strips. Of course, there are grain or bean-rich salads populated with bona fide nutritious vegetables like kale and broccoli that are genuinely nutritious and a fine choice. But they're the outliers. Most salads are nutritional and environmental losers. And just in case you haven't found something to disagree with yet, I'll add that all eggs taste the same. Blindfolded, you can't tell my pampered backyard chicken's eggs from the ordinary supermarket caged bird variety. 
You think you can, but you can't. That's the lot. Four, plus a bonus, zombie ideas. Feels good to get all those off my chest. At least until I check in on Twitter. Up next, COVID-19 reinfections may increase the likelihood of new health problems by Brenda Goodman from CNN. Repeatedly catching COVID-19 appears to increase the chances that a person will face new and sometimes lasting health problems after their infection, according to the first study on the health risks of reinfection. The study, which is based on the health records of more than 5.6 million people treated in the Virginia health system, found that, compared with those with just one COVID-19 infection, those with two or more documented infections had more than twice the risk of dying and three times the risk of being hospitalized within six months of their last infection. They also had higher risks for lung and heart problems, fatigue, digestive and kidney disorders, diabetes, and neurological problems. The findings come as a fresh wave of coronavirus variants, notably Omicron's BA5, have become dominant in the United States and Europe, causing cases and hospitalizations to rise once again. BA5 carries key mutations that help it escape antibodies generated by both vaccines and prior infection, leaving many people vulnerable to reinfection. Dr. Zayad Al-Ali, a clinical epidemiologist at Washington University in St. Louis, led the research, which was posted as a preprint ahead of peer review. He said he decided to do it after watching reinfections become more and more common among his own patients. If you asked me about reinfection maybe a year and a half ago, I would tell you that maybe I have a patient here or there, but it's really, really rare, Al-Ali said. That's not true anymore, though. So we asked a simple question that if you got COVID before and now you're on your second infection, does this really add risk? And the simple answer is that it does, he said. Common new diagnoses after reinfections included chest pain, abnormal heart rhythms, heart attacks, inflammation of the heart muscle or the sac around the heart, heart failure, and blood clots. Common lung issues included shortness of breath, low blood oxygen, lung disease, and accumulation of fluid around the lungs, Al-Ali said. The study found that the risk of a new health problem was highest around the time of a COVID-19 reinfection, but it also persisted for at least six months. The increased risk was present whether or not someone had been vaccinated, and it was graded, meaning it increased with each subsequent infection. Al-Ali said that's not what people really think will happen when they get COVID a second or third time. There is this idea that if you had COVID before, your immune system is trained to recognize it and is more equipped to fight it. And if you're getting it again, maybe it doesn't affect you that much. But that's really not true, he said. Al-Ali said that doesn't mean there aren't people who have had COVID and done just fine. There are lots of them. Rather, what his study shows is that each infection brings new risk and that risk adds up over time, he said. Even if a person has half the risk of developing lasting health problems during a second infection than they did during their first infection, he said, they still wind up with 50% more risk of problems than someone who didn't get COVID a second time. The study has some important caveats. Al-Ali says it was more common to see reinfections among people who had existing risks because of their age or underlying health. That shows that reinfection may not be random, and it could be that the health risks linked to reinfections aren't either.
It is possible that sicker individuals or people with immune dysfunction are at higher risk of reinfection and adverse health outcomes after reinfection, Al-Ali says. The most relevant question to people's lives is, if you get reinfected, does it add to your risk of acute complications and long COVID? And the answer is a clear yes and yes, he says. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.